It's Matthew 26, beginning to read at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, G Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. Uh, unless you've been living in a cave for the last few weeks, there's been a lot of discussion on social media, newspapers and news outlets about the importance of journalistic free speech. People need to be able to say what they believe and what they think. So the discussion has gone and so on. I don't want to comment on that too much, but it's important. And here we have in Matthew 26 that we've been journeying through very slowly in the month of March, an important part where Matthew is not just a journalist, but he's also a teacher and he's communicating the importance of the gospel of Jesus. In this uh, passage that we're going to look at today, just before Jesus goes to the cross, there isn't anything that describes Jesus's emotions. And when we get to the cross, there isn't an amount of uh, detail about blood dripping down his face or Jesus's uh, back being ripped open. That, that there's some of that in the book of Isaiah, written seven, eight hundred years before the historical events of Jesus on the cross. But, but Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the, the four gospel writers, they don't so much want us to be moved emotionally, as important as that is. But there's more than an emotional understanding of Jesus dying on the cross for us and for our sake that we might know a restored relationship with God. It's not just emotions. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but Matthew, a reporter, a journalist, writing the importance of free speech even 2000 years ago, wants us to understand what happened at the cross. He wants us to understand what Jesus accomplished. He wants us to understand what was meant by Jesus's words and actions. And in our passage this morning, we've got three words from Matthew chapter 26, verse 47 and following. Three words. First, 
a word from Jesus' lips to Judas and then a word from Jesus' lips to Peter and then a final word from Jesus' lips to the crowd. So Judas, Peter and then to the crowd because Matthew wants us to understand as of first importance what the cross of Jesus achieved. But let's look first of all at Jesus' words to Judas. What does Jesus' death actually mean? Verse 47, please. So Matthew 26, verse 47. This is what it says. It's on the screen. While he, that's Jesus, while he was still speaking, Judas arrived and with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going up to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now there's something very interesting about this kiss. It's something I've learned this week from a, a Jewish scholar, a liberal person. He's not a Christian, but he writes about the normal practice of Jewish um, disciples and their rabbis. Jesus is it is a rabbi and a teacher and he's followed by a group of disciples. But there's something extraordinary that happens here. This is a, what the author I was reading this week, he said that uh, an understudy, a disciple would never, ever, ever kiss their rabbi, their teacher. A, a, a disciple would never kiss their teacher because it shows equality. It shows a, a commonality. You would never have a disciple kissing their teacher. So what's going on here? As Judas gives a sign to the crowd that want to arrest Jesus, his kiss is not just a signal to the mob. It's a deliberate insult from his very heart about the finality of a breaking of the relationship that he had with Jesus. In other words, Jesus doesn't, Judas doesn't come up to Jesus and just say, Hail, Master, greetings, Rabbi. He's not just giving them a sign. He's also saying to Jesus as he looks him in the eye, as he kisses him on the cheek, I'm as good as you. I'm of equal importance as you. I've come out on top. I've always resented you. I've always resented your claims to authority. Enough with that. And I will show that by kissing you as an equal. It's not just that. If you uh, flick back to the uh, top of Matthew chapter 26 and verse 15, we know that Judas has decided to sell his friend Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So with, with money and with affection, Jesus is marked out by Judas as an equal and someone to whom that he will, he will sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, what does that mean? Now, you know from this very famous interaction of Judas, the crowd who want to arrest Jesus and Jesus himself and Peter in the backgrounds, you know that there's something significant happening here, that, that Judas has decided in his heart to sell Jesus. And you know from your own life when it comes to sell and buy. What do I mean? You know, if you buy a house or if you buy a business or if you're involved in a property sale, when you have something very valuable, and it's still worth something to you, you keep hold of it. You don't want to let it go. You never sell it because it's the profit, the business, the uh, the house that you've uh, put down a deposit on, the flat, the car that you own, whatever it is, if it's giving you a profit, if it's increasing in value, then you keep hold of it. You would never sell it unless dire straits hit. But when it stops to perform, 
when a stock tanks, when a car becomes a liability rather than a secure investment, you sell it because it's no longer any good to you. It's no longer making an income for you. You either sell it or you keep it. When it starts to lose money for you, the decision is made for you. If you have resources, you sell it and you buy something else. You sell it and you invest the income elsewhere. Selling and serving are exact polar opposites. Selling and serving. And that's a lesson for us to learn from the Gospels. Here's a, here's a diametrically opposing thing that you can do. You can sell Jesus like Judas or you can serve him. And the Gospels present someone who serves Jesus wholeheartedly as well. Selling Jesus, selling Jesus makes, means that you make him the ultimate end of your happy life. You sell him when he stops coming through for you. You sell him when the investment he asks you to make is too great for the return that you will receive. But you serve Jesus when you make your life the ultimate end to please him. See that? There's an opposite. One is you make him a means to giving you the life you want when you sell Jesus, but when you serve him, it means that your life is a means to giving him joy and pleasure and delight. And I came across this this week. I was reading the beginning part of Job. Just yesterday morning, um, the sun was out. I was having a mug of coffee and I was reading my Bible. And at the beginning of the book of Job, there is a dialogue between Satan and God. More about that another time, but between Satan and God. And here's the dialogue that we read in the first chapter of the book of Job that you can look up this afternoon. It says this. There's a dialogue that says where God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's a righteous man. And Satan says this to God. Does Job serve God for nothing? Does he serve you for nothing? In other words, is he a servant of you or will he sell you if certain things come into his life? If I take away the good things, if you allow me, God, to take away the good things in Job's life, I am betting, says Satan to God, that he will sell you. He will cast you adrift. He will turn his back on you. I think Satan says that Job is in it just for what he can get for you. And God, in his divine mystery and sovereignty, because he controls all things, says, OK, Job, uh, OK, Satan, you can test Job. And you can find out what happens uh, if you go and read the book. Satan thinks as long as uh, Job is with you, as long as uh, he's making a profit from you in your relationship, he'll be with you. But if I take that away, if you let me take it away, I think he'll turn his back on you. And Satan's put his finger on something. He's put his finger on something. It's happened in my life. Maybe it's happened in your life too. What happens when you live a pretty good life? You're doing the best you can. You're, you're working hard. You're not as bad as other people. What happens when you're a Christian and you're praying, and you're reading your Bible, you're serving and you're giving, you're being generous to people. You're doing your best to follow God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. But whether you leave live a, a good life or whether you're a Christian and you're trying to live a good life with your own resources as your strength and then you pray for something that you know is not too big a thing but you've deserved it you, you've accrued some credit some resources and God does not come through for you what happens then 
What are you tempted at that point to think? What are you tempted to do? What are you tempted to believe? I think you're tempted to believe and think and do that. I've lived a good life. God, do you owe me? I've done all this and given all this and and experienced all this and read all this and prayed all this. and, And God, you owe me. You should come through for me at that point. If you're thinking or have thought that, if you've believed that, if you function like that, you are behaving just like Judas. You are treating God as a resource to your end rather than serving him. You're a seller like Judas, not a server. You're one or the other. Either your happiness, your agenda is the non-negotiable and God has to come through for you because you know what's best. Either God is the end or he's a means to your end. It's as simple as that. You're either a seller or you're a server. That's what to Matthew and Mark and John, not Luke, but Matthew, Mark and Luke are presenting for us. And these are three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. There is an opposite to being a seller who's like Judas, and that is you're a server like Mary. In John 12, we meet Mary, Mary of Bethany, part of Jesus's inner close circle. Mary's the sister of Martha and Mary's presented by Matthew, Mark and John as a server and not a seller. Mary is remarkable. Mary is the one who took this bowl of uh, or alabaster jar of perfume and smashed it so that she could gain access to the valuable contents and uh, anoint Jesus's feet, not his head or his hands, but his stinky feet with this very very hugely expensive jar of perfume it's like she put her whole family's net worth in jeopardy by doing this and it's her way of saying i'm not going to sell out for you i'm going to serve you utterly wholly to the uttermost completely i put everything jesus at your disposal i'm going to risk it all for you and i love you so much i'm so devoted to you that I'll smash this hugely expensive alabaster jar of perfume that I can never reuse on anyone else because it's sealed and I will anoint your feet. And Mary is saying the exact opposite of Judas. Friends, you're either a Judas or you're a Mary. There's nothing in between. You either say to Jesus, I love you unconditionally like Mary did. Or you're a Judas. You either say to him, I will obey you no matter what. Or you won't. You either say like Mary, I will obey you no matter what. Practically, no matter what it costs me. Socially, no matter which friend will turn their back on me. Culturally, no matter what society thinks of me, I want to serve you and I want to put you first. Mary did that. But Judas wanted to sell Jesus for what he could get for him. So he kissed him on the cheek as an equal and he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. You're either like Judas or you're like Mary. Either Jesus is supreme in your life or he's not. And how do you get so committed like Mary? You need to look afresh at the cross. That's why we're going so slowly looking through Matthew's gospel as we journey towards the cross at Easter. 
how do you serve Jesus unconditionally? Because there's a fair bit of Judas in my heart that I want to turn my back on Jesus when he doesn't come through for me and do what I think I deserve or what I think is best for me. You need to look at the cross. Because as we look at the cross, we see Jesus' unconditional love. He held back nothing for you or for me. I mean, there's no, I will love you if, I will love you but, I will love you unless, I will love you as long as. There was no unconditional qualifications to the love of God that we see in Jesus on the cross. God gave his very best. He gave his all. He gave himself. He gave his son to rescue you and me. And Jesus did not say, I will love them as long as they. I will love them if they. I will love them unless they. Jesus says, I will love them to the utmost. And I will love them to the end. So that means you can't dabble in Jesus. Jesus is not one amongst many. He's not one amongst four or five uh, precious people in your life. He has to and he deserves and he commands the throne of your heart like nothing else can. He deserves it. It's not some religious insurance or help. He's loved us to the uttermost and that's what he deserves back from us. Absolute commitment, absolute devotion. He deserves our life, our soul, our all. That's what Jesus said as he spoke a word to Judas and now he speaks a word to Peter. He speaks a word to Peter. Look at verses 51 to 52 with me. 51 to 52. Not speaking to Judas now, but now Jesus speaks to Peter. There's some interesting words here. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, says Jesus. Now, John chapter 18 says that this person was Peter. And this fits with Peter's uh, impulsive character that we see as he jumped out of the boat to see Jesus and, and sink before he, uh, Jesus raised him up and so on. So the one who drew the sword, the Mr. Action, is always Peter in the Gospels. But what does that mean? What, why did Peter do this? Well, the sword, like in the modern world, but especially in the ancient world, the sword was a symbol of force and judgment, almost a symbol of authority as well. It's a symbol of might and a symbol of power. And Peter draws out his sword and, and strikes someone that wanted to arrest Jesus. He's trying to, he's trying to uh, bring in his own limited understanding the kingdom of Jesus in, but by force. He, he thinks the sword will, will help Jesus. It's as if Peter thinks that Jesus needs some support. He needs some protection and he's the one to do it from his entourage. He's the only one with the sword that gets drawn. And Jesus says in verse 52, you've got it wrong. Put the sword back. Not just I'm going to replace the ear. I'm not just going to heal it. Put your sword back, Peter, because there's something profound that you do not understand. You've not yet grasped about my kingdom. Verse 52, all who live by the sword will die by the sword, says Jesus. In other words, Peter, you don't understand the gospel. The way up is down. The last will become first. You, you've got a worldly mindset. You're thinking of physical, 
Ness, you're thinking of might and power and bloodshed and authority for a kingdom to be established. And, and you've misunderstood the, the upside down nature of my kingdom. You've not grasped the reality of the cross. And I've explained it to you at least three times and I've modeled to it to you over three years that the, the way down is always the way up. It's the humble who will be exalted and the exalted who will always be humbled. And Peter does not grasp the message and the heartbeat of the gospel according to Jesus Christ. That's about substitution. Jesus dying in our place and the only one that can die for our sake. We say it every week, but Jesus Christ, he was the substitute. He substituted himself for us. And unless you believe that, not just understand it, but unless you believe it, it won't change you. What does substitution mean? Let me remind you. Substitution means the Lord God came down from heaven and he took our place and he died in our place. He took the place that we deserve to be in so that by faith we can take the place that he deserves to be in. He came down. He substituted himself for us. He put himself on the cross for us. He puts himself under the penalty that we deserve in our place for our sake, uniquely, once and for all. He's the only one that could do it and he was the only one who was willing to do it and he's the only one who's done it. And so the cross is the greatest reversal there's ever been because the way up is the way down. God puts himself where we deserve to be so that if we believe in him, and what he did on the cross, we will go to where he deserves to be. So when Peter draws his sword and says, Lord, I'm with you. Let me help you establish your kingdom. Jesus says, I've not come to wield a sword. I've come to take the sword. And then the question, of course, that comes is, well, well what sword is that? In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, 2 and 3, where we see God's perfect world that he spoke into being by a world of authority and creative power. Adam and Eve, our first parents, decided to turn their back on God's loving rule. They decided to be their own masters, their own rulers, their own saviors. And because of that, rightly, they lost God. They were thrown out of the garden. And the last sentence of Genesis chapter 3 says this. God banished them from the garden and he puts in front of the Garden of Eden a cherubim, an angelic being, with a flaming sword that flashes back and forth, guarding the way to the tree of life, guarding the way to the presence of God. Because of what you've done, God says, there's no way back into my presence unless someone takes the sword. The sword has to fall on someone. And the good news of the gospel is that it did. It fell on God himself. It fell on God's king, Jesus. He doesn't turn up uh, wielding a mighty flaming sword, but he comes to take a sword upon himself. He comes not to bring judgment. He comes to bear, to take God's judgment for our sin upon himself. The innocent one dies in the place of the guilty. That's the whole picture of substitution. God dies in our place uniquely equipped and qualified to die for our sake. And Peter pulling out the sword shows that he did not understand the principle of substitution. 
He wanted to protect Jesus. And Jesus says, no, in my death, I will protect you. Put your sword back because I've come to take and bear the sword, not from a human sheath, but from the wrath of God and from his right hand. God comes down so that we might be lifted up. God comes down so that we might be forgiven. God came down to die for sinful people like me and like you. That's Jesus' word to Judas and that's Jesus' word to Peter. And then Jesus speaks finally a word to the crowd. So a word to Judas, a word to Peter, and now Jesus speaks a word to the crowd or to the mob. Now look, if you've ever seen a mob, a, a mob, uh, surrounding perhaps policemen or a politician is very, very hard for the person surrounded to keep their calm or to keep their cool. Look at three things that Jesus says to the crowd beginning in verse 55 with me. You can see them on the screen. Jesus says, verse 55, you come with swords and clubs. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying to the crowd with a coolness, you're as wrong as Peter. I'm not leading a rebellion. Look at what he says next, verse 55. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching. I've been arrestable all week. Why are you coming to me now in the middle of the night? You could have arrested me any time you so chose. Now look at verse 56. But all this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples deserted him and fled. His disciples ran away. His father abandons him on the cross. And yet Jesus is not angry. He's not confused. He doesn't lose his call. Because verse 56 says, I know that there's a plan. All this is happening so that my father's plan might be fulfilled. God has not lost control. As terrible as it is, I entrust myself to his care. You see, the cross of Jesus shows us no matter how much everything looks like it's out of control, no matter how much darkness there is in our life or suffering or despair or even death itself, God is still in control and God will always work out his good purpose in the life of Jesus and in our lives too. If you really understand the cross, no matter how bad things look, no matter how long-term suffering appears, no matter how unjust things are that you've experienced or are currently or will experience, no matter how out of control things appear to be, they're not. Look at what Jesus says in verse 56. All this has taken place so that the Bible, the scriptures, my father's plan might be fulfilled. So if Jesus can say that, as a Christian, because God has not changed, we can say that and believe that too. Look at that reference that John made reference to speaking to the children in verse 53. These legions, this army of the angelic host, there are legions of angels all around me, says Jesus. And this is a reference back to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 13. As Elisha. Elisha the prophet following the ministry of Elijah. Elisha is in a town called Dothan. And he's surrounded by the hostile Syrian army. 
And his servant is absolutely scared to death. He's petrified. He's convinced they're all going to die, that God's lost control. And Elisha prays to God that his servant's eyes would be opened up to see the reality of the spiritual realm surrounding the city of Dothan. And God in his grace and mercy does that. He opens up his eyes and he sees legions of the heavenly hosts, the chariots of fire, all around the city there to protect God's people. And the next day, God actually, by his Holy Spirit, smites the enemy blind and he saves his people dramatically, uniquely, historically and finally. But that's not the only place in the Bible that we read of Dothan. Dothan, centuries earlier, is also the place where Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. Genesis chapter 37, verse 17. Many centuries before Elisha, Joseph was sold by his brothers. He was cast down into a, a pit in the ground and he was sold into slavery. And he probably prayed to God time and time again. He's probably praying to God in the pit. He probably prayed as he was taken from Dothan to Egypt by the slave traders and he must have felt that God had abandoned him. He must have thought, God, what are you doing? He must have thought, God, what's happening in my life? Why is everything going wrong? Have you deserted me? Do you care? Are you there? Joseph must have thought that time and again, but of course he hadn't. Because if Joseph had not been put into a pit and sold into slavery and gone from prison to palace, he would not just have saved his own family, an extended family, from famine. But he, God through him saved a whole people, many people from starvation. And it's very interesting to think about, hang on, that's the same place. So in one case, in the story of Elijah, Elisha, Elisha calls out and says, oh Lord, help us rescue us and God does and then exactly the same place you've got Joseph Joseph would have prayed out saying oh Lord help me and yet it looked like God chose not to at least in the short term it looks like God comes through for Elisha but it looks like God turns his back on Joseph as heaven falls silent but the truth is that's not what happened God came through for Elisha just as much as he came through for Joseph and just as much as he will always come through for us. God is there as much in the silence of Joseph as he is in the dramatic, unique revelation that he gives to Elisha as he sees the mighty uh, legions of the heavenly host come to deliver God's people. And the cross tells us all that and so much more. The cross says whatever suffering, difficulty is coming into your life, if I follow Jesus in the midst of the suffering, it will only bring me into some kind of resurrection in the future. God always leads his people into life, even if there are many deaths in the process. I'm going to bring you more into my grace. I'm going to bring you more into a closeness of a maturing relationship of, with me. You'll know more of my spirit. You'll know a greater dependency upon me. I will come to you to the degree that you come out of your safety for me as you follow me. God is never out of control, friends. He's never out of control. Elisha and Joseph and especially the cross shows us that. And Jesus says that to the crowd. All this has to take place so that the scriptures, my father's good plan is fulfilled. So suffering so difficulty, so death, 
God will always use every aspect of your life for his ultimate good purposes. But God hates suffering, remember that. God hates evil, remember that. And yet in his good, kind purposes, as a good, good father, he overrules absolutely everything so that everything that comes into your life, even the really terrible and hard and difficult things that you can't see any purpose for, Jesus says to the crowd and to you and to me, there is a plan and you can trust God because he's never let Jesus down and he'll never let you down either.